Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Hear now God's Word. In Him, that is, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, Amen. Last week I began by pointing out that all of our problems, every last one of them, are caused by sin. Not obeying God, not doing what He says to do or doing what He says not to do. Those are all of our personal problems, all the problems of the world. Every last one of them is a result of this disobedience to God, which, by the way, is the opposite of love. It is the opposite of communion. In fact, it tears people apart. It tears relationships apart. It separates us. It is the source of all kinds of conflict, great and small. It brings divisions among people. For example, the division that we know about in the Bible that is so uh, dominant through the pages of Scripture between the Jews and the Gentiles. But the Gospel is the good news because Jesus dealt with our sins and as a result He began the reunification or the reconciliation of all things to Himself. All that's broken is fixed in the Gospel. He begins that work in you and in me. And and as we come together as God's people, not just here locally, but throughout the world, all races and cultures and circumstances, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, where the grace of God comes, He begins to bring that back together. And so we read that if anyone is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. We saw that it's God's work that does this. That that at the beginning of this reunification is the fact that we are in Christ. We are in the second Adam. We died in the first Adam. We live in the second Adam. We are brought back into this vital covenant relationship with God in Christ. Second, we saw as a result of being in Christ that this changes who we are. Paul tells us that in Him we have obtained an inheritance. We are joint heirs, brothers and sisters, members of the same family, children of God. God takes this disparate, divided group of fallen humanity and He transforms them. Now therefore you are no longer strangers, Paul writes. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are now a new nation. We are now the same family. The Christian, the Christian who realizes he or she is a joint heir of Christ, of course, we pointed out, can no longer be discontent. It is amazing that when we become content, how much of the conflict between us and others fades away. Just not that important. What used to upset me, what used to be so important and so, uh, so much a concern to keep score and to make sure everything was equal and even and all of that fades away. And so we indeed have turned our eyes upon Jesus. And the things of earth have grown strangely dim. And that's where we stopped last week. But there's still more. And so I want to continue with where we left off last time and talk about three more things that Paul is uh, exalting in and delighting in, in in our salvation. Third, In a statement which shows both God's side and man's side, Paul gives us an explanation of the way in which we enter into those blessings. In verses 11 and 12, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So Paul has already said this in a general way, but now he makes it very particular. Our salvation is to the praise of His glory. Because our salvation is all His doing. It's not me and Him. It's not 50-50. It's not 40-60. It's not 90-10. All of salvation is God's work. Therefore, it's to the praise of His glory. Salvation comes in spite of us, not because of us. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, it is all God. So just look around you. Look at all the Christians that you know. Look at the ones in this room, the ones in our community, the ones in your family, and perhaps you know some in other parts of the world. Just look at those. Have you ever seen such a disparate, and we might say desperate, group of people? Different races, countries, ethnicities, languages, cultures. As Paul will say in the next chapter, Ephesians 2.14, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one. And in Colossians 1.19 and 20, Paul writes, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace. Remember the problem that sin causes is conflict, war. Whether it's at your house or in the world. And Christ has made peace through the blood of His cross. And it was planned and executed on His timetable. For by grace... Have you been saved through faith? And that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? Not of works, so that no one can boast. Paul says, salvation is to the praise of His glory, 
None of it goes to us. It all goes to him. And again, his plan was executed on his timetable, as we've said. It was God's eternal plan that devised the way of restoring the broken unity of man. And particularly, and, and in particular, he purposed that you, put your name in there, that you and I have a place in that plan. That's how detailed the plan is. It's not a general plan. It's a detailed plan. He's the infinite God. He's the all-knowing God. He knows not just you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many days you have. When as yet there was none of them. That's how detailed this plan is. It was God's eternal plan. And He planned it. Not only planned it, but He carries it out. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing that we see here that Paul is exalting in is that he shows us the guarantee of the fact that we have these blessings. And still more important, the guarantee of the fact that we shall never lose them. Verses 13 and 14, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. These words describe the means by which God makes us to be Christians as well as how He assures us of salvation. And I want to urge you to listen closely because this is vital. How do I know? The Bible tells, Paul writes elsewhere that we're to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. What am I looking for? What is the evidence? What is the guarantee? You remember that the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. They were to preach the Word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is living. It produces life. It does it in a way that I can't explain. I like to say it's magic. It's mystical. It's God's work. Let there be light. And there was light. And then when he also says, let there be life, there was life. And when Jesus says to Lazarus, come forth, he came forth. I don't know how that works. But we've been given that word to go forth and proclaim. And someone proclaimed it to us. This isn't just any truth, but rather the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. When this truth is heard and seen, it comes to be the, the greatest news we have ever heard or known. It's the good news concerning the person and work of Christ, who He is and what He's done. And no one becomes a Christian apart from this truth. No man comes to the Father but by Him. And so it's critical to get it right. The application of the word of truth is made by the Spirit. It's not just... This is not just an instruction book. This is not just words. It's not just a checklist. But something else has to be put with it for it to be effective. The application of the word, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. You know, you could study 
doctrine. You could study theology. You could pass a test. You could make an A on the test and still miss what we're talking about here. 1 Thessalonians again, 1.5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. I know where Paul said you can see the evidence in us. The gospel was evident in us. Think about what Paul was and now what Paul is. What was he before the road to Damascus? What was he before the Spirit had transformed him? And they knew that. So you had the word preached, and you had this evidence of their lives adorning the gospel, the evidence of what the power of God had done in them, but also you have assurance coming by the Spirit. Again in Ephesians 2, 1, and then verse 4 and 5, And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's a resurrection. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. A bunch of dead people He makes alive together, all of us, in Christ. The application of the word of truth is made by the Spirit. This isn't just any truth. As we said, it is the good news Concerning the gospel. That is the work of the Spirit. Do you remember the dialogue, I think you will, the dialogue between God and Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? I just want to read that passage. I love this story. But it's absolutely the illustration of what we're talking about here, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. So the hand of the Lord came upon me, Ezekiel says, and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, I love the way the Scripture gives these extra details, they were very dry. I think that it's the parallel of what we read about Lazarus. He stinks. Yeah, the Bible wants you to know he's, he's not just dead, he's real dead. Okay, all the way. There's no hope here. And he said to me, God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel's very smart. So I answered, O oh Lord, you know. I suspect Ezekiel wanted to say, no way. But he knew God. And so he didn't. In effect, he said, Lord, you tell me. Again, he said to me, prophesy to the bones, speak to the bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know I am the Lord. He's talking to dry bones. Giving them the word of the Lord. This is what God said to say to the bones. Talk to those bones. So, I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And I spoke, and there was a noise, and a sudden, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over. But there was no breath in them. There's something missing. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. And we might say, say to the spirit. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's the story of the church. That's the story of the word preached, spoken to the dry bones, and that's the word spoken to the Spirit. Prayer, Lord, we need you to do something. If these bones are going to live, we can't do it. This is no mere intellectual analysis of the cold word by itself. It is a living and powerful word. It is applied by the spirit of the living God. No one can say, the Bible says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember how Paul and his companions met with some women who were praying and he spoke the word to them? But we're told that Lydia believed, but how did she come to believe? So here's Lydia, some women are meeting, they're talking about God, they're, they're being religious women, and Paul speaks to them, and we read in Acts 16, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken. Has the Lord ever opened your heart? I ask that knowing that the answer is yes from most of you. I would love to know that it was all of you. But just in case, I want to ask, it won't matter if he's opened everybody else's heart, but he hadn't opened yours. Now, the Spirit does not work mechanically. He doesn't force our wills. Rather, He persuades our wills. He makes the truth attractive to us. Suddenly, we desire and we admire the truth of the Gospel. What used to be boring and uninteresting is now exciting and lively. And the result is that we become, as Peter says, like newborn babes who long for the pure milk of the Word, like a baby that cries for milk. They're not indifferent about it. It is an intense desire. They're not going to be satisfied until they have it. Does that describe you? The only answer from a resurrected corpse is obvious. You see, there cannot be maybe, there cannot be perhaps, there cannot be I hope so. Think about it. Can a corpse, would that be the response of a resurrected corpse? 
Did Lazarus have to think about it? And Jesus said, come forth. Now, when, he had, when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. By the time we get to the next chapter, the Pharisees who had witnessed the resurrection were trying to figure out how to kill him again. N.T. Wright gives this illustration of how the Spirit gives a guarantee to us that He's done these things in us. The word Paul uses for guarantee here is a word used at the time in legal or commercial transactions. Suppose I wanted to buy a plot of land from you valued at $10,000. We might agree that I would pay you the first $1,000 as a down payment, guaranteeing the full sum to come in the future when the details were complete. Earnest money. Guarantee. The Spirit is the down payment part of the promised future coming forward to meet us in the present. And as a result, we place our trust or belief in Him. Romans 8, 14-17, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs, uh, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And then fifth, and finally, the Apostle stresses, that the ultimate object of all of this work of salvation is the glory of God. And this has a bearing on what we're doing this morning, on worship. Verses 12 through 14, that we who first trusted in Christ should be, he says, to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also... Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Second, here again, to the praise of his glory. But if we back up and look at verses 5 and 6, he said, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Three times then, in the opening verses, of Ephesians, Paul tells us that this plan and this working out of salvation has as its object the glory of God. Now, glory has to do with greatness, with magnificence, and in the case of God, perfection. Vainglory is the translation of a Greek word that means empty glory or pride. For example, in Galatians 5.26, the Revised Standard Version says, let us not uh, be desirous of vain glory. Uh, The New King James says, let us not be conceited. Why is God, this comes up a lot in apologetics, why is God so concerned about his own glory? This is one of the arguments that atheists like to bring up as a charge against the Christian God. 
if one of us were seeking his own glory, we would thought we would think of that person as being egocentric, proud, arrogant, and we would be right. First, we're creatures, and second, we're sinful creatures. Proverbs 25:27 To seek one's own glory is not glory. You ought to be ashamed of yourself if you're seeking your own glory. It is not our due. It's wrong. But God is holy and perfect. Sinless. He is the creator. Glory is due him. And it is not sinful or ugly. First Chronicles 29.11 Perfection should be glorified. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory. The, uh, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Let me just make one comment here. We won't explore this. I think Roy is going to be teaching here this summer on some of these things, on the attributes of God. One of our problems, all of us, is we, we worship a little bitty God. But that is not the God of the Bible. You cannot even imagine how big he is. Try. You will hurt yourself. We need a much bigger view of the God that we're talking about. The God that created all things instantly by the word of his power and sustains them constantly. That's the God we're talking about. This is not the man upstairs. This is not somebody that's that we, we go to and we can't figure out any other way to do things. This is not an idol. This is the living God. And He is bigger than any of us can imagine. In fact, He is deserving of our worship. That is the proclamation of His worth, His value. Psalm 29, 1-2, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, speaking of leaders of the, of the world, of nations, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And we just sang from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. That is, every day. Declare His glory among the nations. His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. For He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Don't, don't blow past that. How big is the cosmos? Just how big? How little? We can't see 
in either direction to the limits. And he made it all. And he made it easy. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him. All the earth. N.T. Wright summarized it well when he wrote this, summarized this passage. He says, Everything, of course, is done to the praise of God's glory. Look back over the story which Paul has told as an act of worship. God has taken the initiative. God has done what was necessary at great cost to himself to buy us back from the slavery of sin God has given us the Spirit as a sign and a foretaste of the whole renewed cosmos which awaits us at our inheritance. Discovering that you are to receive an inheritance like that should change your whole life. How can you not join in a hymn of praise? Let's pray. Father, we bow before your glory and express our gratitude for your indescribable gift to us. We praise you, we worship you, and we proclaim with the psalmist, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts. And I will declare your greatness They shall utter the memory of your goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion and slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. Amen. Sometimes we see a disaster coming. We might see it on a weather radar map as a hurricane approaches. We might see it in the Bible's warnings of judgment on someone's life as they rebel against God or simply disregard Him. And it is not uncommon for the person or persons upon whom the disaster is surely coming to not fully appreciate what it is that's about to happen. Well, this is true of blessings as well. A child usually doesn't appreciate what their parents 
have done for them or what they are currently doing for them until much later in life. They might not comprehend the inheritance that awaits faithful children. In Ephesians, Paul is reflecting upon what God the Father has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. His eternal plan to redeem us, to adopt us, and to give us an inheritance. It is easy for us to either not comprehend just what this means or else for us to take it for granted. But if we ever begin to get a true glimpse of the magnitude of His work on our behalf, and the promise, promises that he's made to us, then we could never be ho-hum about it. I saw a video clip a couple of days ago watching uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. Some children's parents were telling them as they were getting in the vehicle that they were going to Disneyland, or Disney World, one of those. And the children were giddy with joy. Some of them giggled and some of them cried and some of them danced. They were just beside themselves with excitement. We need to be more like those children. Paul wrote at the end of Ephesians 3. Listen to this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer. As we come to the table, I want you to ask God to show you more of that width and depth and length and height so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, You are the faithful one, and today we bless Your holy name and lift it up high with praise and adoration. For you, in your mercy, condescended to us. You sent your Son. God became a man that we might have an apostle and a high priest, a mediator, that we might be saved from our sins. We thank you today for your mighty works of providence and the holy inspired record of your redemptive work throughout history. No man ever thwarted your purpose. 
nor will any man ever frustrate your plan. Nothing is impossible for you. Your word shall stand forever. Indeed, you have remembered your covenant, and we bow with grateful hearts. Send us forth, O Lord, with your blessing and with your strength. Help us to remember your covenant as well, that we might dwell forever in the house of the Lord. Bless this Lord's Day for your glory and for our good. The feast, the rest, and the joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. Amen.